Well, a very good morning to you all. A warm welcome to the Rose Theatre and to Kingston University and to this uh, conference on Francis Yates, The Art of Memory. Um, my name is Dr. Matthew Birchwood. I'm Head of Department for English Literature here at the University. And it is uh, obviously a great honour and privilege to present our first speaker, Professor Richard Wilson, who is, to give him his full title, the Sir Peter Hall Professor of Shakespeare Studies here at Kingston University. I say that it's an obvious thing that it's a great honour and privilege to um, introduce Richard. It's obviously also a little bit daunting, not only because of the scholarship and the scholar himself, uh, but also because, and, and we might mention the three major monographs in passing here, um, Secret Shakespeare, Shakespeare in French Theory, and most recently, Free Will, Art and Power on Shakespeare's Stage. But also because of the eloquence of Richard's own introductions to speakers, which are like many academic papers in many ways in their own right, and often vie with the lectures themselves for their erudition and sheer authoritative scope and grasp of the wider critical and intellectual landscape. So I won't try to compete with that today, but I will say that Richard has been a really dynamic and galvanising force since he joined Kingston here in 2012, four years ago. It was an Olympic year, I remember that. And this conference is more evidence of that dynamism. So in recent times, we've had the International Garrick Conference on Shakespeare and Garrick, the conference on Jan Cott, our contemporary, and of course, the series of Kingston Shakespeare seminars, uh, which Richard has organised and chaired, and they've tackled topics such as Shakespeare and sovereignty, Shakespeare and the law, Shakespeare and the uncanny, amongst many, many other topics. And this is where I normally hear Richard's uh, masterclasses in introductions. All of these have been brought into being by Richard, and long may they continue. Now, it seems to me that what all these events have in common is a keen sense of place and time. And there is a timeliness and a fitness of space to this latest conference on Francis Yates, which I think we'll hear more about in a second, and her seminal publication, The Art of Memory. It is a great pleasure, therefore, to introduce our opening speaker to tell us about Francis Yates and Shakespeare, Professor Richard Wilson. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you also, Matthew, for the uh, collaboration in all those projects, which is so important to um, the success of the academic program in this theatre. This theatre was created by Sir Peter Hall to bring actors and academics together, and it has a very special mission in that sense uh, of fulfilling Peter Hall's vision. Uh, I'm sure he would love to be here today. Um, and the mission, which I think is unique in Britain, is to hold events like this in a theatre environment. That theatre environment has a particular relevance to us today because when Peter Hall was planning the theatre, not only with the excavations of the rows on Bankside, an influence on the auditorium, which if you haven't seen it, you may have an opportunity to if you go to the herbal bed this evening. It's an Elizabethan auditorium in a modern building. But Francis Yates's ideas about theatre and the theatre of the world in particular harmonise with Peter Hall's vision of the theatre as itself a memory theatre, a space of collective memorial enterprise in which intellectuals as well as performers came together. You couldn't imagine in that sense a more appropriate building, and you'll, I hope, uh, confirm that when you see the auditorium later tonight for this event. The morning after the Shakespeare tercentenary, an English schoolgirl sat at her desk and wrote that I have decided 
on this 24th day of April, 1916, to keep a journal, which shall be as a record of my life. Prophetically, she first misattributed Iago's I am not what I am to Francis Bacon, before confessing, I ought to be studying his essays at this minute. I sat down to do so, but I feel moved to start a journal instead. So rather than finishing her homework, she doodled an imposing list of the works of Shakespeare which I have read or seen, for which she applauded herself. Bow wow. The 16-year-old diarist had already familiarized herself with half of the dramatist's plays, and the works would indeed bookend the story of her days, as she grew up to be one of the most influential, if idiosyncratic, Shakespeare critics of her time. Today, she is an unsung heroine of Shakespeare studies and a forgotten founder of cultural history. When she died in 1981, the Times called her Britain's outstanding Renaissance scholar, who had proved her own elective affinity with her two great heroes, Shakespeare and Giordano Bruno, by freeing her highly individual and original books from ordinary academic traditions and boundaries separating disciplines. But Frances Amelia Yates had only been compiling her diary a month when the event occurred that would, in fact, set the compass of her life. Last Wednesday afternoon and night, the 31st of May, there was a great naval battle in the North Sea, the greatest fight since Trafalgar. We have lost six or seven ships with their gallant crews, but there is every reason to think the German losses are equally heavy. True, it is not the desired and smashing victory it was hoped we would gain when the Germans came out, but this was because when our main fleet come up, came up under Jellicoe, they all ran back into their old canal again. What a time to live in. Next time they come out, we'll have them. Rule Britannia! As the most anticipated yet indecisive naval engagement in history, even the name of the battle the British called Jutland remained in dispute. Ton Hernsler has traced the resulting propaganda war through the 1916 Shakespeare souvenirs, where Kaiser Wilhelm is depicted as Falstaff, boasting that if he had not sunk 50 British ships, I'm a bunch of radish. And Admiral Shear's claim to have won a battle of Skagerrak is rubbished in maritime terms. Thou liest, most ignorant monster, thou debauched fish. According to Hernslar, the succession of First World War marine disasters, which included the sinking of the Lusitania, had a shattering impact on heroic conceptions of Shakespeare, whose poetic tempests and shipwrecks were now applied to the traumatic experience of the war years, before being re-enchanted into something rich and strange of post-war significance. The war at sea was so bitterly disappointing to the British that Shakespeare would thus emerge from it an internationalist, representing the mind of Europe. Such would be Yeats's line of thought. But it is deadlock that registers in her teenage jottings about Jutland, where she protests that, anyhow, the enemy have not gained the glorious victory they claimed. And by most recent reports, it is shown to be a victory for us. And five days later, is reduced by the drowning of Field Marshal Kitchener 
to, by enemy mines to an explosion of impotent peak. Those Germans are cowards. Those Germans are murderers, not fit for decent people to fight. Cowards, cowards. The coincidence with Jutland was sure to overshadow the 1916 Shakespeare anniversary. But the reason the naval calamities of the Great War detonated so deeply in the mind of the future author of The Art of Memory and the Theatre of the World was that she had been christened in 1900 in the church of H.M. Dockyard, Portsmouth, and raised among boys and boats, literally at the prow of British sea power, as daughter of a key admiralty official, the naval architect who masterminded the revolution, in the words of his memoir, from wooden walls to dreadnoughts. Most disastrously, James Yates had supervised the secret design of the vessels that exploded at Jutland. When Admiral Beatty famously observed, there seems to be something wrong with our bloody ships today. He would live on until 1941 as the so-called father of the Institute of Naval Architects, but as senior constructive officer at Barrow and on the Clyde, James Yates shared Sir John Fisher's heroic but catastrophic decision to sacrifice armour and bulkheads to speed, which doomed all but 17 of their total crews of 3,300, as the battle cruisers Indefatigable, Invincible and Queen Mary were blown up that May afternoon. These were ships his daughters had helped to launch. When France's two older sisters presented the bouquets that read the ceremonial bottles of champagne, and as Ruby Yates remembered, the great ship which towered above us glided away magnificently with increasing speed in the distance, made a bow to the spectators as she left the launching ways and passed quietly out of sight. In December 1979, Frances Yates fell at her home in suburban Surrey. And as she waited assistance, the 80-year-old dame of the British Empire, alone all day with my little cat, and feeling very wretched, rock bottom, failing, blind, scribbled down her worries that her career as a historian of occult philosophy had consorted with the bad demons of the 20th century. Was struck how Cornelius Agrippa, a book mentioned by Shakespeare, could lead to Hitler. So thinking, thinking, worrying, worrying, in these last days of the dreadful old year, Yates faced up to what she saw as her personal involvement with this terrible history. And a memory of the sense of something awful coming in the years when her father built his ill-conceived battlecruisers. The war broke our family, she wrote, as a teenager, I lived among the ruins. The, historians, the, the historian was referring to the death of her idolized older brother at the Battle of Loss in 1915, the shock of which, according to, to Deanne Williams, froze Yates into the state of mourning that conditioned her scholarly efforts to recover and recuperate lost and better worlds, to return, as she described it, to an idealism that has been crushed, to unity after dissension. For the feminist critic, 
The portrait of the Virgin Elizabeth in Yeats's book Astraea as a doll fashioned in a conversation of learned men about queenship and power figured the infantilized position of a woman born into what she mourned as a golden age when the British Empire was at the height of its power and the British Navy glorious and second to none. But Yeats's thinking and worrying as she lay in the winter shadows also suggests that deeper than any search for lost time, what she brought to her Shakespeare studies were intimations of something looming, a darkness vaguely sensed amidst all the pomp and circumstance that she dated from her earliest days. One evening, my father arrived with a newspaper. We stood near the gate whilst he told us about the Titanic disaster. The loss of the Titanic was the first piece of frightful news. The first revelation that the whole rich world of modern civilization was not so safe as it seemed, that things could go so badly wrong. I believe that I realized this even at the age of 12, and it fitted with the intimations. In our family, news about a ship had always a specialist slant. My father explained about the bulkheads, or the lack of bulkheads, in the Titanic. There is a poignant passage in Yeats's autobiography that sets the scene for her attempts to make sense of her world. In the episode of The Sugar Cake, the iconographer of court festivals records how, when she was a child, a sugar cake arrived one day in a parcel addressed to herself. It was one of those creations in which Glasgow confectioners specialised, a shortbread covered by an elaborate design of flowers. She had only just unwrapped this bomb surprise, however, when her father entered, flew into a towering rage, and ordered it to be sent back at once. I asked no questions about this mysterious scene, but the memory of it was stored, and in much later years one guessed its meaning. Seemingly innocent enough, the unsolicited cake was actually a test of James Yeats's loyalty, his daughter came to suspect, and his heroic intransigence in refusing the sweetener would have done him no good in some quarters. Yeats guessed the overture was connected to her father's sudden retirement, which caused much distress as they wandered from house to house, a confusion in family plans made more disturbing by the imminence of war. For what had happened was that the bellicose fisher was forced to resign by the new king, George V. <coughs> Thus, in its tantalizing mix of high ideals and low politics, excitement and disappointment, the primal seal of the forbidden cake provided the cultural historian with all the ingredients for her allegorical decipherment of Shakespearean theatre as a similarly multi-layered mystery in which a silly play might have some secret bearing on a European sequence of very great political, religious and artistic importance and touch on something deep. If her rejected gift linked James's Yeats' Alice-like prodigy with high diplomacy, and the origins of the First World War, her adult career can seem like one long attempt to rewind to the party when peace was offered and salvage what might have been if only she had eaten her cake. 
the father of naval architects, cuts a sad figure in the historian's later notes, planting a cedar of peace beside her in the garden of Five Cobbots Road, the suburban house in Claygate, Kingston, she chose for her family in 1925, where she would remain until she died. Of course, it was fantastic to imagine Fisher's warmongering might have been reversed if his naval architect joined the appeasers. The battle cruisers were set on course for Jutland. But as her father's heroic refusal to defect cost him his job and the income that should have sent her to university, Francis Yates's post-war portrait of the bard as peacemaker looks like a symbolic mutiny. That is surely a subtext of her scholarly debut, which prefigured her later theories by transporting Shakespeare to the continent. Yeats's article, English Actors in Paris, during the lifetime of Shakespeare, appeared in the inaugural 1925 edition of the Review of English Studies, but belied that title by analysing an entertainment at Fontainebleau in 1604, when London players acted for the court of Henri IV, and the Dauphin paid no attention, according to his doctor, until the moment a head was cut off, after which he rushed to the kennels to restage the tragedy with hounds ripping a stag to shreds. Then for weeks, the overexcited infant stalked the palace with an apron on his head, pretending to be a player. Haunted by their memorable performance, he says he wants to act in a play. Let us go and see Maman. We are comedians, he keeps saying, and begins stalking away, saying, Tiff-toff, my lord, as he paces the room in long strides. Typically, Yeats airbrushes the sinister pantomime of the future Louis XIII and brother-in-law of Charles I, ordering a public beheading of a stag, and highlights instead the transformation of this murderous mask into merry madness. The good physician does not tell us, she writes, how the incident in the play affected the child, whether he was interested or frightened. He goes on briskly that Louis was taken into the garden after the play and went to watch a hunt. But the following entries show that the English actors made no small impression on the little prince, then aged four. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and the child's powers of observation were well developed. For we know that the loud voice and great strides, strutting and bellowing, as Hamlet unkindly puts it, were characteristic of English declamation at the time. In Yeats's reconciliation, the bloody doghouse becomes a garden. For all her ideas about conflict resolution are prefigured in this story of a boy who mimes a robustuous, periwig-pated fellow that frets his hour upon the stage and struts about the room, intending tiff-toff as an order for execution. She deduces that what woke the ubu-like clown prince was the sadistic game Shakespeare's Richard III plays when he asks the punishment for traitors before Hastings can demur, if they have done this deed, my lord, he shouts the famous words, if, talks thou to me of ifs, off with his head. It is an immense outburst, Yeats remarks. And it may have been at this point that little Louis began to sit up and take interest. In her euphemized account, however, 
The players teach the pert prince to make a mockery of such monstrosity. Yeats had unearthed dispatches in which the same actors caused a fracas outside the Dionysus wine cellar in Saint-Germain-de-Prés on St. David's Day, when all our Welsh men wear leeks in their hats. One of these jokers abused the Parisians by waving a leg of mutton in their faces. But the players escaped the ensuing melee after the Welsh ran in among them and made all the French quickly retire. A drunken man will never take hurt, the embassy attaché minuted. And this Shakespearean farce seemed to Yeats to epitomise the good humour the London players brought to the massacres of Paris, and which a laughing king of France had commissioned for his heir. Peace, I say, Gallia and Gaul, French and Welsh. If Yeats does not quite quote the host of the garter, bringing the sectarian animosities of the Merry Wives to a hilarious end. The spirit of that politic Machiavel hovers over her study of the cross-channel gigs of English actors in the years after the Edict of Nantes. As always, the shipbuilder's daughter looks for a higher reality in this farrago and finds it not only in a politique Henri IV, but the impresario Robert Brown the best known and most successful of all the Elizabethan actors who travelled abroad, whom she traces transporting dogs, bears and apes to Paris for his majesty's special pleasures. After this gala, Brown and his men trundled to Frankfurt, where they performed at the Harvest Fair. And Yeats then tracks them in Augsburg, Nuremberg, and with the Landgrave of Hesse at Kassel. Those who opted to go beyond seas with Mr. Brown were forerunners, she says, of the great diaspora of English comedians who fanned out across Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, and Poland in Shakespeare's time, and whom she regards, like her successor, Peter Burke, as the first true Europeans, because they were no respecters of frontiers. All my studies have been linked together, Yeats would explain at the end. Each effort led on inevitably to the next, and her essay on Shakespeare's Paris peacemaking looked forward to her, to her idolization of Henri of Navarre as the ideal king, whose policy of toleration inspired hopes of some generous solution of Europe's sectarian wars. But it also announced a turn from battleships to scholarships which her family humoured when they marked what the TLS called her new and lively work by renaming their home New House. Over half a century later, Yeats convinced herself that in this first venture into high and deep scholarship, her father steered her as if she were the figurehead of one of his own ships. With such innocence, love, buoyancy and enthusiasm, I was first floated into the world of scholarship. Fifty-five years later, I am still in New House, in which I have written all my books. My father, who was a devoted Shakespearean, was interested in this article on actors, which reflects a deep-seated family theatrical inheritance. My father was descended from Shakespearean actors. The Yeats Shakespeare heritage was remote. 
the Australian actress Nellie Stewart was a cousin. But Shakespeare functions in the Paris essay to exercise the bad ghosts of 1914 and the Treaty of Versailles. For John Maynard Keynes, Macbeth revealed how equivocators like Lloyd George plunged Europe into war. Likewise, for the Tyro academician, the Grand Guignol of Richard III provided a parody of high politics when mimicked by a boy. With a university degree by correspondence, via extramural classes in Worthing, Yeats never lost this capacity to sail through high and deep affairs with the innocent buoyancy of an Alice. And in her first Shakespeare book, she found a perfect persona for her wonderment. Until she produced A Study of Love's Labour's Lost in 1936, no one had ever paid much attention to the brainy impudence of Moss. But Yeats made the insolent page the anti-hero of the play. Given her own status as an intellectual outsider, still living with her parents, it's easy to see why. With what she calls his lightning jest, on polishing off in an hour a piece of study meant to take three years, Moth voices the superciliousness towards academia that gave Yeats's amateurism its bite. Nor was his laughing contempt for the stupidity of schoolmasters, such as Holofernes, in spite of their, all their learning, the ragging of tutors and textbooks of a mere yokel like Costard. No, in Yeats's decoding, this tender juvenile becomes a portrait of the author as autodidact. He laughs at Amado and Holofernes behind their backs. His precocious wit is viewed with indulgence. He is voluble and natural rather than artificial in his discourse. It is not impossible that Moth's indeterminate position in Love's Labour's Lost reflects some actual situation which we are dimly beginning to perceive amongst persons who were well known to Shakespeare. Yeats does not claim Moth is Shakespeare, for Moth is Nash, she announces in her book, where Byron's conversion to honest plain words is said to endorse Thomas Nash's Pierce Penniness in the Marprelate religious controversy. The play's juxtaposition of russet yeas and honest cursy noes to figures pedantical, Ao to Cuckoo, or Songs of Apollo to Words of Mercury, is a screen, she deduces, for the tug of love when the Catholic tutors of the young Earl of Southampton, including Shakespeare, were ousted by Protestant pedagogues led by the translator John Florio. Yeats had just completed a biography of Florio, where she unmasked him as one of the sly Italian secret agents employed by the Cecils, and on research trips to Italy had come to associate his pedantry and puritanism, puritanism with fascism, as she later explained. During these years, when we were so busy looking for topical allusions in Shakespeare, the news was becoming worse and worse. I had seen Mussolini's black shirts marching in Florence in 1931 when I was chasing Florio. Now our lives were punctuated by the shocks of Hitler's actions. Those shocks registered in Yeats's theory that the occult school of night to which she believed Florio belonged and that 
the King of Italy of the play says wears black as the badge of hell, was a front for the Protestantism she had no qualms in labeling Nazi. I am an Anglican who takes the historical view that the Nazi revolution of 1559 and all the miserable complications that ensued deprived me of part of my natural and native inheritance as an English Catholic. The black shirts of Yeats's Love's Labour's Lost are the mathematical and astronomical fantastics in Raleigh's School of Atheism, whose materialist ideas lead straight on through Newton to the modern world, which is so ready to trample underfoot respect and love for the immortal souls of men and women. The play becomes a kind of sermon by an instinctive conservative on this view, and the answer to science that a good Catholic would have given, for Shakespeare was at heart a Catholic. Thus, when Moth tricks his teacher into bleating A-B backwards, like a silly sheep, bah, the schoolboy not only mocks Florio's dictionary, but the entire Enlightenment project, inaugurated when the king decrees that his court shall be a little academe. For by the time all the jokes about hot sheep and ships are over, this new learning is thoroughly discredited by life, as personified by a child whose very name is a moat in sunbeamed eyes. It is easy to read this debunking as Yeats's exposure of the naked emperors of 1914. But her, her book also has the confusion of the 30s. So she makes nothing here of a line about Florio's Montaigne when Holofernes is reported to educate youth on the top of a mountain, nor of a setting which would soon rise grandly in her work when she, when she came to perceive this was highly significant, connecting with a message from the French court and with a general European atmosphere of hoping things from Navarre. The message from France was staring at her, she later realized, but hidden in plain sight in speeches about the heroism of love. For valor is not love a Hercules, still climbing trees in the Hesperides, subtle as Sphinx, as sweet and musical as bright Apollo's lute strung with his hair. And when love speaks, the voice of all the gods make heaven drowsy with the harmony. Yeats later disowned her book on Love's Labour's Lost as the worst of my efforts, that failed to develop the good points it glimpsed and was lamentably ignorant of Renaissance thought and magic. To her subsequent embarrassment, she guessed Byron's hymn to heroic love probably contained some memory of Pythagoras, but then asserted that like all the talk about stars and heavenly bodies, this was mere jargon the Catholic dramatist intended to ridicule as Aristophanes laughs at science in The Birds. The secret document she later twigged she thereby missed was one that Barone's namesake, Giordano Bruno, carried to England in 1583, a letter of introduction from the French king, explaining how the Dominican had been sent with the idea of reaching submerged Catholic and moderate Protestant opinions to induce leaders of thought towards a supernatural policy of Catholic union inspired by Copernicus's heliocentric universe. 
Yeats had met her culture hero and was serenely unperturbed that no such text was ever found. We only have Bruno's word for the momentous missing message that changed his life from that of a wandering musician into that of a very strange kind of missionary, she conceded. But I think it is probably true. So whatever it did for the messenger, the purloined letter was vital to the scholar as it entirely reversed her take on Shakespeare and restored her faith in science. I have always... We'll, we'll skip that for a moment. I have always had behind me or within the thought of Shakespeare. Where is he? There he is. Many years ago, moving along the Strand with Giordano Bruno as I endeavoured to translate his Ash Wednesday and began to realise that this great, what this great impressor was, the dissemination of a magical philosophy that would do away with all religious differences on a level of love and magic, Shakespeare seemed to come to join that journey to the supper party. Yeats always spoke of her research as a detective story, and her suspicion that some major clue was missing that prevented her solving the mystery of Bruno's mission and why he was staying in the French embassy pointed her to Love's Labour's Lost with the clairvoyance of the heroines of her beloved Dorothy L. Sayers and Agatha Christie. In a flash, Alice became Miss Marple as she sleuthed that her trail led to the French Academy in the play, attended by courtiers belonging to opposite sides. Suddenly she intuited that Shakespeare was representing the factual academe in which Henri of Navarre invited poets and musicians of opposite religious parties to cooperate in the production of music with good effects as part of the effort of toleration and conciliation that Bruno had brought to London. So it seemed as if that rather ridiculous play had far more significance than the trivial question of whether Florio was Holofernes. For what the comedy now told her was that there was no contradiction between science and religion, since science was medieval and it was humanism that impeded it. To produce this turnabout, Yeats had to forget how the scene begins to cloud towards the close of the play, and for the rest of her career would blithely say, love's works are never lost, as it all ends in a feast of mutual goodwill and charity. But the Shakespeare who joined the mystic supper party had shown the way back to a world that made sense and to idealism after it has been crushed. There followed the war years. The blitz over London, which passed over Kingston every night. Ambulance work, fire watching, but I was determined Hitler would not prevent me from writing that book. When Yeats looked back on her Shakespearean epiphany, the notion that academic knowledge, thought and activity, bringing all the concerns of humanity into a harmonious whole that worked towards peace and toleration was tied up with her recruitment in 1941 to the Warburg Institute. As Ernst Gombrich recorded, the Institute's Jewish founding, Arby Warburg, had arranged his library to reflect human progress from magic to reason but too many things had happened to destroy that rosy optimism. Thus, after the Institute migrated from Hamburg to London in 1933, 
everyone talked about Neoplatonism, said Gombrich. It was the great intellectual fashion of the time. Francis Yates was studying the esoteric currents of music and magic, and for a year or more, I was completely steeped in Neoplatonism. The deputy director, Edgar Vint, had been carrying a copy of Yeats's book on Love's Labour's Lost when he introduced her to the interdisciplinary Warburg method at a party in Cornwall. And Shakespeare's Donish comedy would remain for them both a paradigm of the encyclopedic idea that in the Renaissance all subjects connected one with the other in a European tradition. Thus, the screams of Hitler were reaching us across the channel, she remembered, when she started to reinterpret the play's dark Saturnian humor about night and blackness in the dialectical terms of the inspired melancholy of the Renaissance alchemist Agrippa. Verone is a good Saturnian, she inferred, not a wicked conjurer, because he hears the universal harmony. But his paradox, that love is black, leads to the far deeper esotericism of Hamlet, King Lear, and Macbeth, that in the hour of despair and disillusion, the dark needs no candles, for then the dark is light enough. So as Yeats saw, the Warburgian quest for universal harmony had its own tragic preconditions. The harsh wartime atmosphere in which it was conceived influenced the insistence on harmony. Harmony through the harmonizing of religions, and through the harmonizing of all the arts and sciences in the encyclopedia. I lived at one time in the rather absurd expectation that this might come about. The author of the French Academies could see the absurdity of hoping non-nationalistic teaching at the Warburg Institute might realize the program of Shakespeare's Navarre to create in one little academe a wonder of the world for living art. And Yeats's notion that this entirely new approach of history in the round would involve sharing Shakespeare's faith in language, which captures the voices of the gods as a vehicle for imaginative solutions to the world's problems, often struck associates as laughable. For when it came to worldly affairs, the scholar's interest in the melancholy madness of Shakespeare's folly seemed to tip over too often into folly pure and simple. Thus, in Angus Wilson's Anglo-Saxon attitudes, chain-smoking archaeologist Rose Lorimer features as a Margaret Rutherford look-alike, vast and disheveled, like a huge ill-packed parcel that had broken open, forever divining cosmic harmony in phallic symbols. The novelist had observed Yeats beadily for years from his chair as a British Museum librarian. And his cruel caricature appears as much a picture of her eclectic methodology as her person when he describes how every crevice seemed to have burst open, every undergarment to have poked its way to the surface. Another novelist, Margaret Drabble, likewise recorded the awesome sight of her tottering dangerously on the top of a library ladder, her arms full of weighty volumes, or descending with an unashamed flash of knickers. The iconographer of Gloriana had herself become a figure of tragicomic legend. Yet, 
She carried with her an aura of white magic, Drabble attested. And that majestic and unique lady, exploding with brain power, ideas and hairpins, in Sydney Anglo's words, now appears heroic too, in her fidelity to Carlyle's myth of Shakespeare as chief of poets, whose heroism lay in his true Catholicism as priest of the universal church of the future. That's Carlyle. Yeats's Victorian notion of the culture hero might belong with her Burkhart and her Bidecker, and her tale that the bard walked beside her on the strand may sound as batty as one she told about her dead sister Hannah reporting to her on the afterlife in the University Women's Club. But it is too easy to dismiss someone who communed with Shakespeare as a link in the platonic chain, a spiritual heir of the ruined monasteries and abbeys, as the Madame Archite of the reading room. Her counterfactual historiography, historiography premised on the radical thesis that history as it occurs is not the whole history, for it leaves out the hopes that never materialized, instead seems aligned with the via negativa of untimeliness that transported so many intellectuals in Weimar Germany. The idea that, as Ernst Bloch stated, history is no entity advancing along a single line in which the final stage resolves all previous ones. It is multispatial, with enough unmastered and as yet unresolved corners. More specifically, Yeats shared this German-Jewish principle of hope with the most celebrated Warburg scholar who never joined the Institute. The themes which monastic discipline assigned to friars for meditation were designed to turn them away from the world and its affairs. The thoughts we are developing originate from similar considerations at a moment when the politicians in whom the opponents of fascism had placed their hopes are lying prostrate. Our consideration seeks to avoid any complicity with the thinking to which these politicians continue to adhere. The smoke-filled colloquium of Walter Benjamin and Francis Yates is itself a tantalizing might-have-been of history, because, of course, these two analogical thinkers never met, due to the failure of the Weimar critic ever to fill in his application form to the Warburg. But the similarity of their theses arose out of a similar conception of the backward-facing angel of history, and an émigré faith that, as Yeats asserted, hopes are as much part of history as the terrible events which falsify them. Or as Benjamin put it, to articulate the past does not mean to recognize the way it really was. It means to seize hold of a memory as it flashes up at a moment of danger. It might be stretching the elective affinity between the authors of the origin of German tragic drama and the occult philosophy of the Elizabethan age too far to see them inspired by the same messianic pacifism were it not for the startling fact that Yeats attributed the esotericism of her later work to Benjamin's closest friend, the great Hebrew scholar Gershom Sholem, without whom, she declared, it would not have been written. Yeats's correspondence with Sholem forms a surprise link between Shakespeare studies and Weimar culture, 
yet it was the Talmudic exegete who apparently persuaded the white witch of the Warburg that the fairies of a Midsummer Night's Dream emanate not from English folklore, but from the Jewish Kabbalah. More poignantly, it was Shalem's studies of the Christianized Kabbalah that convinciates the Merchant of Venice is a drama about what is it like to be a Jew warped by persecution, in which audiences would have heard the universal harmony peeling forth from the Kabbalist friar of Venice, Francesco Zorzi, and empathize with Shylock as a forced convert, a Murano. From here, it was a short step to Yeats's crowning vision of Shakespeare as himself a mystic Kabbalist, who, while he never wielded a wand, nor thought of himself as a magus, is a magician, master of the spellbinding use of words for beneficent sorcery. Yeats's fantasy that Shakespeare's spells were among the secret philosemitic influences that permitted Queen Elizabeth to promenade with the beautiful Maria Nunes, a Portuguese Jewish refugee, and heralded the return of the Jews to England under the messianic Manasseh ben Israel, was grounded in the same Talmudic sprack mystique as inspired Benjamin's view of language as a universal spirit, sprackgeist. So it is in this true spirit of the Warburg, that enclave of German culture into which both were invited, that Benjamin's maxim that the reason fascism succeed is that its opponents treat it as a norm, but the last books of the fabulist of Bloomsbury cry out to be read. For what is Yeats's story of artificial memory, pictured in concentric circles by medieval friars, or in a mental arena by Renaissance Magi, but her utopian riposte to the wearisome story of religious wars and fanatical hatred that has been told again and again. Moreover, what is her extravaganza of the globe with its structurally impossible walls as a model for Robert Flood's memory theater, except the projection of her drive to displace the lethal technology of modern civilization with intelligent design? A world that made sense. Yeats's reverie that Shakespeare's Playhouse was planned as a religious theatre by Templars like John Dee, skilled in cosmological proportion, according to Masonic belief in the microcosm and macrocosm, the harmonic structure of the universe, never convinced theatre specialists. But it made perfect sense as an idealistic reflex to the moral and technical mistakes of the naval architect whose plans went so badly wrong. While her portrait of Prospero, presiding on the top, as a benevolent magus who has risen beyond shadows to a supreme unifying vision could perhaps only satisfy a daughter of the senior constructive officer of her majesty, his majesty's ships. All the world's a stage. The globe motto was no mere slogan for Shakespeare's generation, Yeats proposed, but the key to an entire counterculture in which real stages and real theatres were dreamily connected to the life of man as played on a stage. Everything hinged in this final phase on the extent to which the looking glass play world was taken seriously. And in the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, Yeats contended that the, at the time of the Tempest, Europe's rulers took it very seriously indeed. So when the Princess Elizabeth and Frederick Elector Palatine watched Shakespeare's comedy at Whitehall on their betrothal night in 1612, 
Yeats conjectured. They were spellstruck by the masked Prospero stages for Ferdinand and Miranda into crediting the white magic of Agrippa and duly set off to Prague to practice the reforming mission of the good Magus who clears the world of the evil magic of the witch. Yeats had skirted this witch-hunting territory with her Judaic take on the Merchant of Venice, where she rhapsodized that Lorenzo's serenade to Jessica about immortal souls, purged of a muddy vesture of decay, drew on the Torah, and so exonerated Shakespeare from anti-Semitism. So it may have been this purifying metaphor that came back to haunt her as she lay in the dark at the end, and was appalled how a book of Agrippa's, cited by Shakespeare, could lead to Hitler. For as Yeats came to see, the result of taking the Tempest for real, when the drama-loving couple were crowned king and queen of Bohemia in 1619, and continued the drama of their Shakespeare lives in a new theatrical setting, was unmitigated disaster with Frederick's total failure in Bohemia and the devastation of the Palatinate. Dashed to the Collegiate Theatre, where Francis Yates was lecturing on the Tempest. She is one of the great scholars of the world. But unless you read her books, you wouldn't have the faintest idea what she was talking about. Peter Hall's diary for January the 31st, 1974, records the climax of Yeats's professional life, when she capped her career with the last of her prestigious Northcliffe lectures. Yet the theatre director spoke for many in the packed house when Hall said he was depressed by her reductiveness. Shakespeare, in writing his plays, was apparently referring to the Rosicrucian doctrine. Yeats had asked for trouble from the Shakespeareans by ridiculing their portentous statement of the obvious in an article in the New York Revealed Books on the menace of English lit, aimed at the critic Brian Vickers. And now this Holofernes hit back with a merciless dossier on the rhetoric of excitement that let her misread the joke fraternity of the Rosy Cross as a movement around the elector, building him up to the bohemian adventure by agitating to bring a play to life. John Bossy would later retract his identification of Bruno with the fraud faggot. But Yeats's reputation never recovered in her own lifetime from Vicar's gleanful scorn that she had mistranslated the Latin word for play, ludibrium, which the fictional Rosicrucian sued, Christian Rosencrantz, had employed to mean a fraud. For as with faggot, it seemed the amateur sleuth had fallen for a hoax. What's in a name? Yeats wrote carelessly of the Rosicrucian gospel. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But she knew Shakespeare's last plays was not the book on her hero she had promised. And her work closed on the anxiety that it was perhaps only pious Victorians, like her parents, who could never doubt Prospero's magic was good. So thinking and worrying to the end, it sounds as if she still fretted over what she called a twist in the history of thought that was hard to disentangle. How instead of being a harmless pantomime, 
The vision of imperial peace that sent the lovers to Bohemia had caused a Shakespearean tragedy on a vast scale. Her picture of Heidelberg under enemy occupation, with its galleries and libraries incinerated, indeed reads like the mea culpa of the girl who had cursed the Germans. When she observes how a whole world vanished there, its monuments destroyed, its books and written records vanished, its population turned to refugees, or left to die by violence, plague, or famine in the terrible years to come. Yeats had been accused of reading too much into Shakespeare, at confusing the dramatist with Bacon, but her parting words were a moving justification of the dream of the symposium she divined from his plays. We who have seen the collapse of that dream into even more frightful wars and terrible witch hunting can return to Shakespeare's last plays with a deeper sense of the knife edge of danger on which they were poised. In the end, there had been no love feast. And as an Anglo-Catholic, Yeats appears to land on the wrong side of history with her glorification of Frederick's Protestant crusade. The whole question and the rights and wrongs of it are complicated, is all she could say about this great tragedy of misunderstanding. Yet the old lady, whose birthday cake lay uneaten, who felt an intruder at grand dinners with the knights and pedants, and whose platonic idea of the academy she knew to be absurd, remained undismayed as she closed her last lecture with a resounding avowal of a religious approach to the cosmos. At the age of 80, and weeks before her end, she had travelled for the first time to the central Europe about which she had imagined so much. There in Budapest, she encountered a scholarly, a scholarly community all too familiar with the melancholia of a fallen world. Thus, people seemed to know me and like me in Hungary, she discovered. So it was strangely apt that the card-carrying communist membership of the Hungarian Academy of Science should have comprised the audience that heard Francis Yates celebrate Bruno and Shakespeare one final time as her culture heroes, whose quest for spiritual meaning was an assertion of freedom, she affirmed, in defiance of material facts. In the market-enslaved and spiritually frozen Europe of 2016, who today would say that she was wrong? Shakespeare, the theatre of our goodwill, about the Marcy Boxer type of apologies.